Award-winning coverage lives right here on WMUL-FM Huntington, WFGH-FM Fort Gay, and WTHMLP Ravenswood, West Virginia. I'm dropping the hammer. No, you're not. Welcome to Speed Zone, the best motorsports show on radio. I'm your host, Ben Cower, and across the next hour, we'll recap everything. Yes, everything in racing that happened in the last week. We'll discuss the latest news and cap it all off with a star-studded interview. So buckle up, rev your motor, and drop the hammer, because this is Speed Zone. And welcome, everybody, to tonight's episode of Speed Zone. I'm Ben Cower, and we got a lot on the slate tonight. That's right, we got an interview this week. We actually got one for the first, for the second episode. We weren't able to get one for the first episode. We have the one and only Travis Braden, West Virginia racing legend, on the show later tonight. But before that, of course, the racing roundtable uh, will be joined by Dale Garrett and Justin Zimmer tonight. And then before that, flag to flag. A lot happened this week. It was Daytona week in racing. We got ARCA, we got the trucks, we got Xfinity Series, and of course, we have the Daytona 500. We'll be talking about that in just a quick moment. But again, a lot happened this week. Thanks for tuning in to Speed Zone. We got a great show for you tonight. And coming up just right now, it's Flag to Flag. Welcome to Flag to Flag, a recap of the week that was in motorsports, as Ben Cower covers everything you might have missed in this past week of racing action. And this was a busy week in racing action. Start off with the NextEra Energy 250 on February 17th for the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. And it was last year's race winner and eventual Truck Series champion Zane Smith keeping the trophy as Smith and his identical to last year number 38 Love's Travel Stops Ford F-150 captured the rain-shortened victory last Friday night. With numerous DNQs and unusual stars in the field such as Travis Pastrana and Chase Elliott, it was young gun Nick Sanchez capturing the pole for the newly formed Rev Racing Truck Team. On and off rain marred the beginning of the event, but eventually went under the control of Christian Eckes, trading the lead back and forth with Ty Majeski, who led one lap over Sanchez. Stage 1 went to the lightning-fast Eckes, while Stage 2 was captured by Tyler Ankrum. A massive accident in the trioval mashed multiple trucks, with Clay Greenfield getting loose and being unable to save his sideways number 84 Tundra, totaling numerous trucks, including those of Haley Deegan and Dean Thompson. Two more pileups occurred during the same stage as the rain approached, collecting numerous trucks and enabling an off-strategy Corey LaJoy to take his shot at a potential victory in his Spire Motorsports truck before he was passed by a fast Zane Smith who worked his way to the front and benefited when the torrential rains came and washed the race into an early end. Behind Smith at the finish was Tanner Gray, Christian Eckes, Colby Howard, and Grant Enfinger in fifth. Next up was the ARCA Daytona 200 on Saturday uh, for the ARCA Menard Series. The 2023 running of the ARCA Daytona 200 was certainly one to remember, as the race had a full field, nasty accidents, Hollywood stars, and in the theme of Hollywood, a storybook underdog winner with Greg Van Alst capturing his first ever ARCA Menard Series victory off of making a perfectly timed last lap pass over Jason White out of turn four to take the victory at the strike. Van Alst races for his own team, not having sponsorship for the race three weeks ago. But the underdog pieced together over 20 sponsors in a short period of time and made the most of his opportunity, as Van Alst starts off his hunt for an ARCA title versus the big teams by making the most effective statement possible, winning. 
I think Greg himself stated it best. Oh, it's everything I got. It's the only Speedway car we got. There's no way I was going to bring it home without the steering wheel of the trophy, and that was it. This is for all the short track racers out there that don't think you can get to this level. I've worked my ass off to get here, and we did it! Yeah! Other notable events during the race included Frankie Muniz, former star of Malcolm in the Middle, capturing an 11th place finish in his first ever ARCA start after being caught up in an accident while running top three late in the race, alongside Scott Melton being involved in a nasty, fiery accident early on in the race. Melton was okay. Connor Mozak followed Van Alst in the running order with Sean Corr, LeVar Scott, and Mandy Chick completing the top five. And next on the schedule was the Beef It's What's For Dinner 300 on Saturday, later the same day, uh, later than the ARCA race. In the Xfinity Series, Saturday was all Austin Hill, as he may not have qualified for the Daytona 500, but he made the most where it counted, starting off his sophomore season in the Xfinity Series right by winning the pole and then driving through the entire field not just once, but twice, and holding off the entirety of Junior Motorsports to capture his third ever Xfinity Series victory. Hill started the race off with radio issues that had him drop from the lead car to caboose on the pace laps before retaking the lead and driving through the 38-card field in just 12 laps, eventually winning stage one after an early wreck totaling the cars of Blaine Perkins and former Xfinity Series champ Daniel Hemrick. Justin Allgaier captured stage two, surviving a mess up front that punched out the number two car of Sheldon Creed and numerous other cars prematurely. Teams moved towards the wall and waited to make a move in stage three until the end of the race with the exception of Parker Kligerman, whose 48 Camaro pushed the 44 of Jeffrey Earnhardt into the outside wall after accidentally cutting the left front tire of the 44. Junior Motorsports cars lined up second through fifth behind Austin Hill when with two laps to go, the team made its ill-fated move, with Josh Berry accidentally turning his teammate Brandon Jones into the infield grass and bringing out the yellow. A final restart had Sam Mayer going for broke, three wide exiting turn two before ending up on his roof in a last lap melee that gave Austin Hill the victory in an impromptu photo-reviewed finish. John Hunter Nemechek finished in second place, followed by Justin Allgaier. 19-year-old Parker Retzlaff was fourth, and Myatt Snyder rounded out the top five. And finally, the big event of the weekend, it was the 65th running of the Daytona 500 on February 19th. And this past Sunday was the longest running of the Great American Race to date. The two overtimes pushed the 65th running of the race to a record 212 laps and its third first-time winner in a row, with Ricky Stenhouse Jr. crossing the finish line under yellow on fumes to put his name on the Harley J. Earl Trophy for the first time ever and end a nearly six-year winless streak. Stenhouse finished first but was not up front for most of the race, with Hendrick Motorsports' Alex Bowman and Kyle Larson occupying the front row at the drop of the green flag. The race itself was rather tame, with few incidents, pit strategy, and clean but dicey side-by-side -side racing making up the majority of the event. Brad Keselowski won a fairly clean Stage 1, with Stage 2 going to Florida native Ross Chastain after an early, ch after an early incident in Turn 4 on lap 120 that eliminated top contenders Tyler Reddick, Chase Elliott, and Eric Jones, alongside heavily damaging Ryan Blaney's number 12 Mustang. RFK and RCR rose to the front in Stage 3, 
gunning for the victory before another multi-car accident bunched the field back up with 19 laps to go. The RCR duo of Kyle Busch and Austin Dillon led over the RFK racing duo of Brad Keselowski and Chris Busher, heading to two laps to go before Daniel Suarez looped his track house car around off of turn four and was stuck in the infield grass to put the race into its first overtime, where Austin Dillon and William Byron made contact heading into turn three to cause a massive accident. The surviving cars endured a second and final overtime, with Ricky Stenhouse Jr. working his way to the front between Christopher Bell and a fast Joey Logano before a wreck in turn one caused by Eric Almarola punting an impressive Travis Pastrana, bringing out the final caution, with Stenhouse being ahead at the last scoring loop over Bell and Logano. Logano finished second and Bell third. Chris Buescher racking up yet another top five at a plate track in fourth, and Alex Bowman capping off a balanced weekend in fifth. And that'll do it for Flag to Flag. More to come up next on Speed Zone. What is freedom of speech? It's my mouth, my tongue, and my 32 teeth. My thighs, my mind, my rights to preach, to rap, to sing, and even to teach. No matter the genre, it's still my freedom, freedom of speech. speech. Congress will not choose my religion. Abridging of press, assembly, and petition. The laws do protect us. This is true. To agree to disagree is sometimes better to do. Use your mouth, your tongue, your 32 teeth, your thoughts, your mind, your right to preach. No matter the genre, it's our freedom, freedom of speech. speech. This message is brought to you by the NAB Education Foundation, the Broadcast Education Association, Robert R. McCormick Foundation, and this station. Hey, if you don't want to listen, get your earplugs ready, because we're about to hear some high-octane debate. It's time for the Racing Roundtable, with your host Ben Cower and multiple guest panelists. Whew, now that that's over, who's at the table today? All right, welcome to this week's edition of the Racing Roundtable. As always, I'm Ben Cower. Here, this week, we're here with Dale Garrett, Yet again, and this week joining us for the first time, Justin Zimmer. Justin, it's a pleasure to have you on the show tonight, Dale. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so lots happened this week. Daytona weekend. Daytona, Daytona, Daytona. Four races happened this weekend. We'll start out talking about them in order of how they happened. So, again, we'll start out with the truck series race. It was a bit rainy, but. What are your guys' thoughts on the race? What surprised and stood out to you? Dale, we'll start with you. Uh, the astounding mount of the race was ran under caution. It was completely ridiculous. I think it was 38 of 71 laps or Ab something. It was absurd. Yeah, it was horrible. They need to implement some kind of rule that doesn't include caution laps during a rain delay or trying to drive the track with the cars, whatever. They need to implement something. Going on to the race, though... Ekis and Ankrum were the two that stood out to me. Ekis led like 20 laps, I think, or something. Something crazy. He was really strong in the Bill uh, McAnally truck. I think on the truck side, I was interested really to see kind of how, you know, talk KBM going to Chevrolet, how, how those cars would do it. I think there wasn't as much of a downfall as I thought there was going to be, you know, switching manufacturers. But other than that, you know, you talk about caution-filled race, and, and, and I think you get that early on in the season, especially with the limited amount of practice. I was... I was not surprised by the amount of caution. I'm just glad I wasn't all wrecks. Because I always feel like the first race, especially in like the younger series, like these young guys are trying to win at Daytona, they're going to be more aggressive and do much more wild things and try to make moves. I think the rain helps with that, honestly. I think when you, when you have a threat of rain coming, everyone's a lot, I think everyone's a lot more calmer. Cause eh, it wasn't entirely. Some of it it yeah. was, but... I think calmer than I expected, because I think if you know rain's coming, at least in my mindset, I think I would be a little more aggressive. Oh, oh this could get rain short. 
I want to be on the front. I'm going to do everything I can to get out of the front and stay out there. You thought that there would be like three trucks running at the end if it yeah, was so much rain. Yeah, I, I, I thought so because I think, especially when you have 18, 19 year olds and they all want to win up Daytona. And this is my mindset. If I were on a team and I knew there was third right, I'd be like, guys, do whatever you can to get out front and let's stay out front. You know, don't, let's not be sitting around there trying to mingle the back. But I think. I like the rain short races, the threat of those at the super speedways. I think that makes everybody be a little more aggressive and do moves they wouldn't do earlier on in the race. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it was it was a caution-filled race mostly because of rain. I I don't know exactly. It, it, this entire race to me was just marred by rain. This is the real dud of a race because of Mother Nature, and it was a shame because it really wasn't supposed to rain that much, and it was just the timing of each time it rained was the most annoying timing that it possibly could have been. Uh, and right when they finally, right when NASCAR had finally dried the track, spends an hour and a half drying the track just to like screw, almost screw Zane Smith out of a, a bona fide victory, they spend 90 minutes drying it, get everybody back on the track, and then it starts raining again. And it only rained for like, I don't know, not that long, but it was enough to completely soak the track. At that point, it was like 11:30 at night, and it was it was late. It was like 10:35, 10:45, something like that, and way past the TV window. And Fox was like, "We have we have more important things like uh, college basketball." It was like I think it was like Wyoming and Air Force. It was yeah, a real, yeah, yeah, yeah. real, a, a, real good match. Yeah, a real doozy. Yeah. <laughs> a real doozy no matter what. Air Force is good this year, but I don't think Wyoming is as good. Yeah, it was. Uh, what it, they just didn't want to. It was they. They weren't going to pull an NBC in 2015 and run a start a, a race at 1 a.m. after drying the track forever. Uh, but yeah, it was to me. It was a real dud of a race. It, but that was because of the rain. I, I think Zane Smith deserved to win. Uh, Eckes was also up there, too. I mean, Eckes was, I would say, probably the fastest truck. Um, but, I mean, Smith is a deserving winner. He drove a clean race. Uh, there wasn't really a ton of maneuver, but this is a real dud of a race. Mickey Mouse, but... <laughs> As, yes, in, in Eckes's words, Mickey Mouse. Um... Leave it at that. He's in Florida, so he might as well just <laughs> plug it's it. true. Yeah, he might as well go visit. Uh, all right, next up was the ARCA race, and boy, this was one heck of a race. Usually the ARCA race in Daytona, at least in the last, ever since the switch to, to Gen 6 bodies, it's really been a dud. I mean, the last good ARCA Daytona race was probably around 2012, uh, back when Gerhardt was winning them all, but even then it was still entertaining. Uh, this one was the complete opposite, though. It was a full field for the first time in years. It was a legitimately true full ARCA field at Daytona. And then you have an underdog winner like Greg Van Alst coming out on top. And just that was so exciting to watch. It's, it's so much better when a guy with excitement goes out and wins the race, and he's, he's actually excited to win. Uh, what were your guys' thoughts on the ARCA race? I think that, from the winner's standpoint, enthusiasm drives a lot. Sponsors love it. Fans love it. We, we all love to see enthusiasm uh, for people that win out there, for sure. Uh, he did a fantastic job. Um, right place, right time, for sure. It was a surprisingly good ARCA race, like you stated. I was pleasantly surprised. Really enjoyed the parody up front in the race. Usually they don't have the said parody because it has been a 
snooze fest the last few years. All kinds of different faces up front. And it was usually usually it's a single file around the bottom, and it's just all the Venturini cars pass, up front, yeah. and it's just boring. Justin, you uh, catch any of it? I caught a little bit. I, I agree. I mean, I think normally the, I normally don't watch the arc race to be honest with you, because normally I'm just sitting like, oh, here they go. They're just gonna line up single file, wee, just around the two and a half miles. Just a roller coaster. Yes, yeah, super speedway. Glad there was some action, but you know, and I think you and you mentioned the excitement out of winners, and I, and I think. You kind of sit there. It's nice to see them be excited to win. Like Daytona is one of the crown jewels. Like everybody wants that on the resume, and to see someone be like, "I want it, Daytona." That's something you could take for the rest of your life. It's better than someone just scan the car and be like, "I want." Take my sponsors here <laughs> and all that. But yeah, you know, I, I thought Arca was a little more of action packed and more what you want to see at restricted plate racing. You know, bumper to bumper, a little movement around and. That's what you want. It was a it was a pleasant surprise because usually the ARCA races, at least again in the last decade or so, it's been the dud of the weekend. And this year it was it was the thriller of the weekend. I mean, it was it was fantastic. Okay, now on to the Xfinity Series race. As uh, it was an up and down race. Talk about an epic choke at the end for Junior Motorsports. Uh, what were your guys' thoughts on the Xfinity race, and what surprised you or stood out to you? Probably I was surprised by a little more in the Xfinity race of, you know, and the, my issue with Xfinity is always going to be the drafting. I can't stand they can't do bumper to bumper. Always done like the Cup guys, they do it all the time, and it's great racing because you have a little more action on the super speedway. I thought the Xfinity race was kind of as, as you think it's going to be. I think whenever you get to the end of the race at Daytona, you kind of can throw the script out the window. So you talk about the epic choke job by Junior Motorsports. Daytona and Talladega, like the two tracks, you can't, you could have the lead going to the final lap or anytime soon near the end of the race and everything could blow up and that's just the risk that you have when you get to Daytona like it's not a mile and a half where you could dominate three quarters of the race and you win and I was like okay yeah the fastest car Daytona just has that ability to kind of half change and Atlanta I think Junior Motorsports learned a quick lesson in that this season but they'll be back I think they got a good program again this year no certainly I, yeah the, will they win a restricted by race probably First one of three in the Xfinity side, so I'm not too surprised, but I'll, I'll, my thing with restricted race is this. You could have the best car, but if anything happens late, I think restricted players, uh, that's why I love it, because I think guys are willing to do whatever, whenever to win. I appreciate the lack of big ones that the entire weekend had. Mm. Of course, until the end for yeah. all of them. But, <laughs> yep. um Mayer definitely looked good for a while until the bad block on the back stretch. I just hate how, which seems to be an Xfinity problem more than a cup problem, but it has been a cup problem in the past, is that the field just waits too long. Mm -hmm. They single foul until like two to go. If you're sixth on back, you are not going to win the race with two to go. It's, it's not going to happen. It doesn't make sense. No. Where I, I remember Denny Hamlin tweeted out during the final laps of the race. He said something akin to, you know, come on, guys, make a move. You know, do something. Right. You know, and uh, in, in the past, people just haven't done it until the last lap. This, this year, I mean, I was shocked that Junior Motorsports started making the move heading into turn three with two to go. I thought that was going to be a white flag thing down the backstretch on the last lap where it was just whether it was a premature move or that was the plan. I mean, that alone was what ended up kind of screwing Junior Motorsports because Barry cut down too early, sent Jones spinning into the grass, and then 
everything just went awry from there. Uh, but, I mean, Mayer really went for it on the last lap, but ended up on his lid, of course. And then Austin Hill, who had... I don't I don't really have that much of an issue with who won, because Austin Hill by far had the best car all day. And he drove from last to first in 12 laps off the beginning of the race. It took him 12 laps. off. The, he won the pole. Uh, for everybody, anybody that didn't watch it, Austin Hill won the pole in his uh, 21 RCR car, and then of he had to start from the back because he had radio issues right off the start. And then shotgun on the field drives all the way through the field in 12 laps to get back up to the front and then has to do it again yeah, in the same race and then goes on dominates and wins the race and holds off not just one but all of junior motorsports to win um uh, i think it's a testament to how good of a plate racer that austin hill has become and i mean all three of his wins are on plate tracks something else i want to bring up is i love parker kligerman but dude was a weapon. Oh, absolutely. Dude was a weapon. Mm-hmm. When he took the big machine ride, I was like, oh, man, this is a fantastic opportunity for Parker. You know, he might be able to get a win because I think, who won that car, Reddick? Yeah, Somebody? Reddick did. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the hire, too. I think Parker is a great driver and was very deserving. But I think he was just rusty. And that's the way that I think he put it. I, if I recall on, on Twitter or in, in a post-race interview, he said something along the lines of, you know, I was a little rusty tonight, but it cost multiple drivers good runs, most notably Jeffrey Earnhardt, who was running up there in the top 10 with, like, what was it, around less than 20 to go, and then Parker's just trying to make a move because nobody's doing anything on, anything on the bottom, and he just puts Jeffrey in the wall, and he didn't even know it. Jeffrey went after him after the race and brought him to the car in the garage, and Jeffrey was doing everything in his power not to do something that would get him fined by NASCAR, and Parker was just completely unaware of the situation, almost blissfully unaware, and I think that's going to come back as, as he gets back into the full, full-time full swing of things, but fast, but yeah, I agree, certainly a bit of a weapon. And Jeffrey has every right to be upset, because you ride around all day, here you're at the end of the race, you're in a good position, and for Alpha Prime, a very good position. Mm-hmm. And especially with how that team ran that day. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, and then you just get fenced for no reason. And it easily could have been avoided. He he had every right to be upset. I don't blame him for anything. But like I said, I love Parker, but dude was a weapon out there on Saturday. And I think for the smaller teams, that might be their one chance to guarantee themselves at the playoffs. I think, so you talk about a guy like Jeffrey Arnold, he's probably sitting there. As he gets right, he's like, did my chance of winning a championship just go away? Because... We all know it's going to be Junior Motorsports, Gibbs Racing. They're automatically called, going to automatically win races. But for a team like Jeffrey Earnhardt's team, they're probably sitting there like, did this wreck cost us a chance at the playoffs? It's early, but the super speedways, like these smaller teams, that might be their one way in. That whole that one race could make their entire season or break their entire season. Certainly. And, I mean, Jeffrey was so good at Talladega last year and his one-off with RCR. Uh, to an extent that almost helped him earn this ride and was running a perfect race up until that point, running in the top 10 with a, again, the, the rest of the Alpha Prime team had a real rotten weekend. Baccarella, who owns the team, didn't even get to run his own car, had to put Stefan Parsons in it, and then that car uh, wrecked out fairly early or got damaged early, which completely screwed up its race. Uh, Ryan Ellis was kind of slow to start the weekend. That car was off, and then... Uh, it was just it was just a rough weekend for Alpha Prime, 
and Jeffrey was the one the one bright spot and all went away. I don't know. It, it was just a rough deal. I think Parker just legitimately didn't know and was just trying to make a move there, but this rough uh, deal for Jeffrey. I mean, a certain percentage of it is the spotter also to blame. Yep. Yeah. For sure. I just I don't know who the 48 spotter is, but I'm sure they'll have things figured out a little bit better by Fontana next week. They better because they're going to be Jeffrey's going. not going to forget that. Oh no, no. And I mean, it's they're going to be four and five wide at Fontana next weekend, so they're going to need. They better get that figured out real quick. I think your spotter's important at Daytona. It's really important at Fontana. When you're four or five wide, your spotter is going to be the most important person to really communicate when to shift lanes because you do not want to be caught in the big one. Especially for Jeffrey Earnhardt, mm-hmm. that'd be two races in a row. I think he got, I think he'll have a good run. He's my sleeper for Fontana. I think he'll have a good run there. Earnhardt? Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, Earnhardt actually did. He actually did run well there last year in the Sam Hunt yeah. car, so that's actually not that bad of a pick. He, he ran well, and then he had a motor issue like halfway through the race, but he was running top 12 in that race up until that happened, so that's actually a good pick. Um, now we'll go on to the biggest event of the weekend, the Daytona 500. It was not exactly what everybody was expecting, whether you're expecting a total wreck fest or nothing to happen. It was really all that and everything in between. So a lot to talk about with the great American race this year. Dale, we'll start off with you. I really, really enjoyed the parody this year. 52 lead changes, 11,538 green flag passes in the race. Last year was 6,462. So almost double what we saw last year. There was new players up front every 20 to 30 laps. There really wasn't a dominant car, but if I had to pick one, it'd definitely be the RFK duo. Um, For sure, it was nice to see that amount of parity up there. It wasn't a wreck fest early until lap 198, basically. It It was very enjoyable. The manufacturer alliances, I think, also play a deal into them not wrecking as much anymore. Um, I mean, that hasn't been true for years past, but I think in this case, it, it definitely played played a factor. It helped flow the race for sure. I thought the RFK cars were dominant. I was very surprised. Because I think RFK last year, I don't think they were the laughing stock before, but you kind of sit in there like, where are they? Like, w- like, I think it was a rebuild year last year. Mm-hmm. To see those two out front, I was surprised they waited around to the final two laps. I was like, like I'm sitting at 20 going, like, guys, let's go. Like, Let's start getting aggressive. And they're all just kind of sitting there like, ducks in a row lined up, and I'm like, that surprised me. The wreck fest at the end, I kind of figured that they were going to start wrecking each other because some, someone's always going to be the bonehead at the end to try to ruin it for everybody. That's just how it works at Daytona. Des- desperation. Yeah. Like, someone's going to make a bonehead move at the wrong time, and everyone's going to go out, but I was surprised that they kind of stayed in line. I actually kind of enjoyed it. You weren't sitting there like, oh, there goes 10 favorites up. There goes, you know, Bushert. It was nice to see everybody kind of behave. It felt like, to me at least, it felt like an old-fashioned 500. It, it really did, where besides the end, where ironically it was the longest 500 ever, but uh, it, it just felt like an old-fashioned 500 because of all the different, it was a lot of strategy in the race. It was really fun. There was one pit cycle, I forget when it was specifically in the race, but it was past halfway, that it was like for six laps straight, you would see these groups of like five cars at a time Might coming in to, to take fuel and tires or, or no tires or just different fuel strategies that paid off in the end uh, with, you know, Ricky Stenhouse when he won. He was on fumes coming to the checkered flag. 
he's lucky that the caution came out on the backstretch, or where otherwise he would have run out of gas. It would have been a, you know, a Dale Earnhardt Jr. Coke 600, you know, 2011 finish. If he ran out of gas coming to the finish, it was fun fuel strategies. It was a fairly clean race. It was it was entirely strung out. It wasn't just riding along the top and parading like the end of the Xfinity race, which it just gets annoying in Xfinity. It just felt like a fairly old-fashioned 500, and that's, to an extent, I think, what it needed. And it was just good racing all throughout. It really stinks that that Suarez caution came out at the end there with three to go, because I think it was setting up to be an absolute classic of a finish, where you had RCR and RFK back-to-back, and those are the two fastest teams all race. Um, And I called it. I just want to say, I called it last week, and I said Chris Buescher and A.J. Elmendinger were going to be up front. And Chris Buescher led, what was it, 35, 37 laps? 32 laps. 32 laps and finished fourth. And A.J. Elmendinger finished... Sixth or seventh? I believe it was sixth. I also called Austin Hill to win it last week, even though I did not get to say it on air. Yes, that's true. I can confirm that. Dale had that in his notes last week. He said Austin Hill was going to win. I did. Something I want to offer. I want to offer a different take about when you say it gets boring when drivers ride around. From a driver's perspective, that is the smartest thing you could do at a super speedway because you got to get to the end. The one that pays is lap 200. You have to get to the end. From a driver's perspective, it makes total sense to me, and I understand it every time. Yes, it sucks from an entertainment perspective, but it makes sense to me as a driver myself every time when they do that. I don't enjoy watching it. I don't think anybody does. I mean, I, I can go to my backyard and watch them go down the highway single file. <laughs> you know, like 55 miles an hour is just as entertaining single file. So I understand that completely, why they do it. I will stand behind why they do it every single time. It was, uh, again, I I really loved the Stenhouse win. He had it coming for so long where it's been six years since Stenhouse has won a race. Six years! He and arguably I mean, that, should have won it last year. Yeah, and 2020. I mean, he had the fastest car in 2020, just misused it. Yes. I think, this is just my take, I think it's very fitting that Ricky Stenhouse won this race running the most un-Ricky Stenhouse-like race at a plate track, where outside of the one mistake on pit road, he wasn't overly aggressive. He wasn't making dumb moves throughout the race or moves of desperation way too early. Uh, it, it just seemed like a very calculated race that he kind of let come to him, and he made it through important wrecks. If anything, that pit road penalty actually helped him. He, it helped him miss that big one. I think he ran, in my opinion, I think he ran the most, or the least yeah. Stenhouse-like race. He was nowhere to be found most of the day. Yeah. I honestly kept looking for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, usually he's up there all the time in a plate race. Right. And, you know, on Sunday, he was really nowhere to really be seen the majority of the race. If he was up there, he was bouncing probably between, like, I don't know, 6th and 26th the majority of the day. He wasn't really running a very aggressive race. He wasn't trying to lead laps. He was just letting the race come to him. I would say very deserving winner. I mean, he's had another plate race win, at least coming for a while. I wasn't sure if it was going to happen in the 500, especially with JTG's lack of speed in qualifying this year. Um, But clearly they had something in the race set up, and that's just massive for that team. It's massive for that organization, which, I mean, Tad Geschichter, who's on the team, has been saying in a lot of the, the press he's been getting the last 
day and a half for context we're recording this the day after the 500 i mean he, that team has been down and funding I mean, it's no no it was at two cars a couple of years ago and was running two cars on 1.5 cars budget you know and uh now it's down to the one charter and the one car and it's a multi-car team sport i mean you look at every other team it's got at least two cars and jtg's out there at a massive disadvantage only having one and it goes out there and now it's locked in the playoffs before anybody else and it completely changes how that team approaches the season but it can't slack if last year was any indication with the next gen car i mean 19 different winners that team can't afford to just say ah you know screw it we'll just ditz around the majority of the regular season and experiment and try and gamble and win races but we'll be will be teetering on the edge of like 28th and points even with the 500 win you know it has to go out there and have an actual solid season because there could certainly be more than 16 winners before the playoffs begin and ricky stenhouse even with a 500 win, does not want to be on the outside looking in talladega is going to be huge for them the three the two other remaining restricted players should be huge for that team they're going to have to capitalize i think that's the issue with stenhouse and I remember turning it on, I'm like, I didn't see him up front. I'm like, did Senos crash out already? Like, I, I was like, where is he? Like, where, where, where is he being aggressive? I'm like, then you see him up front. He's like, oh, he actually did something good for once. He's not being wily, wily coyote and aggressive on the super speedway. I thought, great win for that team, but they're good. the super speedways are going to be very crucial for them. What do you guys think of Pastrana? 11th place finish in the Daytona 500. Fantastic job. Yeah. He... He rode around most of the day to stay out of trouble. I don't fault him for it at all. But he played his cards right and was there when it mattered at the end. Eric Amarola gave him a bump when he shouldn't have for a guy yep. that's been out of a stock car for 12 years or 10 years. Yep. Overall, fantastic job by Pastrana. I think it's great for him. I think, you know, that'll be cautiously hard for everybody, but also great for 2311. Still a young team out of a third car in the 500. They've got so much time to do or in develop, research and development for Talladega continue that restrictor play program so benefit for everybody in, yeah in the toyota racing family great for the sport too to have that crossover a successful crossover at that where a guy can come in from outside of a uh, just a very few select truck races in recent years with like nice i mean he, he hadn't run a nascar race in over two years and i wonder if that sets into a, a domino effect of maybe other people in racing maybe having some interest in running the 500 if they have the money to but it was a very impressive run i mean he was up in contention for a top five at the end there and just got that bad hit in the back from almarola and just (laughs) set every everything into motion that uh ended up giving stenhouse the victory under yellow but uh i think another i think the final thing we can talk about with the 500 was kyle bush where what a roller coaster of a day and was was so close i think it would have been very fitting if Kyle Busch, if it took you know Dale Earnhardt 20 years to win for his, I think it would have been very fitting if, if it took Kyle Busch 18 years to win his first, which this would have been. This was his 18th attempt, but you know, not that he said RCR, maybe he can wait two more years and maybe that'll line up perfectly. 20 years of trying. It's <laughs> <laughs> crucial you said that to him. Yeah, yeah like 18 years of trying, but yeah, I, I think for Kyle Busch, look, his first race in RCR that was impressive. Yeah, and with Kyle Busch, I mean, he was so close. Yeah. I mean, had was it with a backup car? That wasn't even his his an, an original car. I thought it was just ironic that <laughs> Suarez dumps him in the duel, and then it's Suarez wrecking in the 500 that also costs him the win. I mean, it's just coincidental, 
obviously, but I just thought that was very interesting. And I'm sure Kyle Busch was very frustrated, obviously, after the race. But, I mean, great start for that team. RCR has had speed two weeks in a row. It's going to be a big test at Fontana to see how that team does. But overall, disappointing for Kyle Busch. Absolutely elated is JTG Doherty Racing with Ricky Stenhouse Jr. capturing its first Daytona 500 victory. All right, so another entirely different situation with a two-car team that competed at the Daytona 500. Regrets during the honeymoon? It was reported by the Associated Press Dan Gelston on Saturday that the King, Richard Petty, is bothered by the current leadership balance at the newly formed Legacy Motor Club between himself and Jimmy Johnson and, by default, majority team owner Maury Gallagher. AP reporter Jenna Fryer added that Richard Petty had already sold his stakes to Maury Gallagher and that Johnson made a deal with Gallagher inherited and inherited whatever role the King had been promised by Gallagher. Is Legacy Motor Club falling apart already? Uh, what does the team need to do to resolve these problems? I mean, it's a difficult situation. You, you look at Richard Petty, he's like, oh, like, oh now another person's getting involved in my business. All right, let's... Let's get this ironed out. And I think the, the tough part is this. They haven't had the on-track performance as well. Yeah, I would. Uh, that's debatable. I mean, I mean, it won last year at Darlington. It won last year, but... Almost won Fontana. You're not yeah, sitting... Almost won Fontana, that's true. But, like... The, Didn't make the playoffs, though. That's the big with thing. With the history yeah. of Petty Racing, like, you just sit there like, Oh, great, yay, they got to win. All right, another four years, or four or five years. I think what Jimmy Johnson's doing is really taking control of this team, being like, Let's map out a five-year plan. Let's not sit here every year and be like, kind of back of the pack. It's going to take time. They got Eric Jones, who's a veteran, and they got Noah Gregson in that 42 car. They're trying to get a plan going. And I think for Richard Petty, it's kind of hard probably seeing another person get involved in his business. He's like, okay, now why is this guy here? Jimmy Johnson's also been in the best equipment at Hendrick. He's going to know how to run a race team. And he's going to have expectations. Right. Richard Petty's probably sitting there like, okay, now I gotta deal with Jimmy. Is it gonna fail? There's a chance. There's always a chance at anything. Like, there was no guarantee, oh, you guys gotta get along, you guys gotta be buddy-buddy. It's gonna take time for them to form a relationship with regard to the business. My take on it is that Richard Petty's 85. You know, he's, he's 85, he's been around since near, I mean, his family has been in this since the inception of the sport. And... I mean, he's the king for the reason. He's, he's the king for a reason. Petty has not really, truly outright owned his own race team since the economic downturn in 08, where it's been a team that has been kept alive through, uh, it was that merger with Evernham in 08 that was ill-fated. And then you had uh, the merger with George Gillette bought out the team, and that was an absolute disaster. And then you had... Merst, Andrew Merstein come in and co buy the team. And Merstein, when he came in, he, you know, had breathed a little bit of life back into the team. It was a, it was a perfect time to be in a Roush alliance too, because the Roush cars was just so fast in 2011 and 2012. But uh, it didn't pan out long term. And Merstein, essentially, by the end of that investment, was just using it, you know, as a he was just not selling because he was still turning a profit on it, albeit barely. And uh, as soon as he sold that team, I mean, that team was really dead in the water uh, until Maury Gallagher stepped up and bought the majority of it. And, I mean, last year, it was publicized that Petty only owned 10% of the team. This year, now with adding Jimmy Johnson, I mean, I don't know if Jimmy Johnson owns the 10%, and if 
Richard Petty is essentially just the glorified PR figure for the team, but uh, I could see why Richard Petty is unhappy because his name isn't on the team for the first ever time. Is you know Petty isn't in the name. Do I think the name could be a bit better for the team? Maybe. Do I think it's uh, essentially a, a cheap knockoff of the Trackhouse branding? Yes, because it's. I mean, look at the branding on the Twitter. Trackhouse uses the house, and then all of a sudden, you know. Legacy Motor Club uses the club, and it, it sounds like a it sounds like a like a Porsche luxury owners club in California, or a, or a you know a soccer club more than it does a race team at that. I don't know. I, I could see why Richard Petty is unhappy with the direction of the team so far. I think it's just because of the name and the branding, though. I I don't see why he would be unhappy with any of the performance. I mean, they're going out. They, they got Noah Graggs in this offseason, who had a tremendous season in Xfinity last year, and he brings money in sponsorship. Eric Jones doesn't really bring any money, but he brings a lot of talent. And that team is very balanced. It adds you know, the most successful driver, at least championship-wise, of the modern era in Jimmy Johnson. And Petty said in the article, he's like, Jimmy's bringing in his people. They, they're the reason why the branding is this way. This is, it's Jimmy Johnson. But it's just going it's a weird back and forth because petty when they made the announcement of the name switch petty was in full support of it and then now he isn't what's going on it's i I just don't get it Uh, this is something that again in my opinion i don't think richard petty should have been airing out his dirty laundry to the press do i (laughs) i don't even know if he was aware of what he was saying i think Possibly, maybe even his words might have been twisted a little bit, but uh, I, I think it's no secret that you know he's not generally overjoyed with how things are going. I think he wants his name on the team, and I think he wants <laughs> a little more representation and say in the team, especially after last year and it being as successful a rebuild year as it was with just Maury Gallagher and Richard Petty. And then now you add Jimmy into the equation, is that going to muddle things? I don't necessarily think so. Uh, but I see why Richard Petty is unhappy. Those are, de- those are problems, though, that need to be solved behind closed doors. Those don't need to be aired out in public, whether it's Richard Petty or Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy Johnson has seemed very confused by it. You see, he was disheartened by the comments. Um, and I don't blame him. I don't blame him. You, you, talk, with a, you talk with the other living seven-time champion of NASCAR and all of a sudden he's one moment he's smiling and having a great time with you in meeting rooms and at the shop and then you get to the biggest weekend of the year starting the season off and all of a sudden he goes out to the press and says I'm not happy with how things are going that's just something that needs to be solved behind closed doors but do I think the beginning of the end I guess at the beginning for Legacy no, no. I I think the issues will be resolved in due time. All right, so just one final topic this week. Uh, Fontana coming up this upcoming weekend. Uh, we're not going to necessarily talk about the upcoming weekend itself. We'll talk about the race weekend next week on uh, next week's episode of Speed Zone, but we'll talk about a hot topic as this will be the final race at the current can re, or at the current configuration of Auto Club Speedway. It's the 2.5-mile uh, D-shaped oval. It's been the same since 1997. Uh, the pavement has gotten too old and worn out, I guess, and the property is worth just too much money. And instead of repaving, they're going to reconfigure the track. Should Fontana be reconfiguring to a short track? 
Should it repave? Or what should be done? Uh, Justin, we're going to start out with you. Well, I think whatever you do, you're going to have people on police. I think that's the first thing with Fontana. You kind of have to accept that no one's got to be happy. I really think the best answer to this is going to be just let's make it into a short track. You know, I think you talk about the land. Two and a half acres in Southern California, you can get a lot of money. And for NASCAR, that's kind of, I don't know, if they're, uh, I haven't looked at their financials, but, you know, there are times you're sitting there like NASCAR can't afford a lot, and I think they're one of the smaller revenue sports. Eh, debatable. But, I mean, it's they gets massive money from right. the TV contracts. But then again, still, that property is probably the, it's worth the most of probably any property in, in NASCAR. You can probably get a lot of bang for your buck. If you're NASCAR, I'm probably going short track. More short tracks. I've been saying it for years. I'm excited to see what they turn this into if they fully go through with this. Should they bulldoze an existing track to do it? I think it's necessary. California was part of the growth in the 90s. I think that it needs done and bulldozed down to a short track, even though, even though, hold your pitchforks, even though Fontana has become a favorite in recent memory. Ever since 2011 with the finish with Kevin Harvick and Jimmy Johnson, I myself included have loved Fontana. Looking forward to it every weekend. Of course, every racetrack will have a few duds here and there, but 2011, 2013, 2014, 2015, you remember what happened in the finish or in this in this race at this track every one of those years, no doubt. Even last year was fantastic. Last year was one of the yeah. best races I think I've ever seen yeah. in cup racing. Yeah. As long as I've been watching, it was one of the most complete races I think I've ever seen. Yeah. And I, th- I, I agree with you guys. I, I agree that I think the short track is easily the best option here where they can't repave it. They can't. It would be way too expensive and a lot of newer fans don't necessarily remember and I wasn't probably old enough to even remember it myself but you go back and watch any Fontana race from 1997 through 2010 and the fans hated it even though it had two race it had two race dates for a while it was just one groove the pay it was like Michigan currently where it just didn't age at all forever and it was just boring racing and all the only reason why the attendance was always there is because it's in Southern California and it would just pack the house as the pavement wore the racing got way better amazing track on the schedule but it's getting to it's gotten to a point where you can't repave it because it's not the configuration it's the pavement itself that's making the racing so good and dynamic Uh, it's not the configuration if they repaved it it would just be another 20 year wait or 15 year wait for the racing to be good again and modern nascar tracks can't afford that luxury look at kentucky it, it took that risk it repaved in 2016 and after four years it's off the schedule and it hasn't been back since even though kentucky is way different than fontana uh modern nascar tracks can't afford the luxury of just going out and just eh, repave the current configuration and then we'll just wait it it doesn't help i mean you look at michigan it did that, and the attendance is nose. It's taken a nosedive over the last ten years. I mean, they have one race date now instead of two, and they still the attendance is still bad. And the race the, product isn't that great either. No, it isn't. It's like because the pavement isn't aging, and I don't know. It's it's frustrating, but I, I think the best solution here is the short track, but it needs to be done 
right. It, it can't be some slop job or just something that was pieced together in, in iRacing or is the dream of a uh, of some ISC executive that's just, oh, we'll just put a short track, we'll have the banking really high, we're just going to make a hybrid of, it's going to be a hybrid of, of Bristol and Richmond all in one. And and maybe a little bit of Memphis thrown in too with how long the track is going to be. And is that actually going to be good? I remember Dale Jr. saying on Reddit a year ago, uh, or I don't know if it was on Reddit, it might have been the Dale Jr. download, but it was Dale Jr. They, they brought him in because they made a model of the track on iRacing of what they were originally going to reconfigure it to. And it didn't work. Like what they had planned for it did not work, which is why I think this has been delayed a little bit and why it's kind of still up in the air a little bit because I don't think they necessarily know how they want to reconfigure it yet but they know that they want to <laughs> so I'm just interested I just hope that whatever they do to the track that they don't turn it into some they don't build up all this hype for oh my goodness a new short track on the schedule and then it's bad or it's a mess and I, I thought the original blueprints of it were fascinating because it was a bull ring essentially in Southern California, you're going to pack the house for that every time. You have a night race, Southern California on a bullring track in the middle of Southern California. That's going to, cup race, I mean, it's going to pack the house every time. But that's only if the track is good. So I think the short track is the right choice, definitely over a repave or selling the facility. I don't think they should do that at all. Uh, I don't think they should turn it into a road course either because they already have Sonoma there, yeah. too. So it's like that's within close vicinity. But you turn it into a short track, but it needs to be done right. And that'll do it for this week's edition of the Racing Roundtable. Justin Zimmer, Dale Garrett, as always, thank you guys for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up next, we're going to have our first ever edition of the Speed Zone Sit-Down. This week, we get to sit down with a West Virginia racing legend, Travis Braden. Stay tuned. More coming up next here on Speed Zone. Hey. Oh, d- hey, Deb. I thought you were the radon test guys. The who test guys? Didn't you see the paper Sunday? The Surgeon General issued another lung cancer warning. Oh, like the cigarette warning? Yeah. They're saying we have to get our houses tested for radon. I don't smell any radon in my house. Oh, that's because radon is an odorless, colorless, tasteless gas that seeps into your house from underground. Does this story have a happy ending? Yeah. You'll be a lot happier once you get your house tested. Learn more. Visit the EPA at epa.gov radon. That's epa.gov radon. Welcome to the Speed Zone Sit-Down, a weekly chat with a member or members of the motorsports community. This week, I was lucky to sit down with a West Virginia racing legend that's still in his 20s. He won in his first ever Arkham Menard Series start, took home the trophy in the 2016 Winchester 400, and is champion of the 2019 Snowball Derby. Oh, and by the way, the double major graduate in aerospace and mechanical engineering now works at the Hendrick Motorsports. This first edition of the Speed Zone Sit-Down features none other than Travis Braden. All right, welcome everybody to the first ever Speed Zone Sit-Down. Here on Speed Zone, I'm Ben Cower, and joined today by the one and only Travis Braden. Travis, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you very much, Ben. It's a pleasure to be joining you. All right, so we'll start out with the elephant in the room. For those who might not know, uh, you're now a setup mechanic for the one and only Hendrick Motorsports, and uh, you're on the Daytona 500 pole, winning 48 Ally Racing Crew in the NASCAR Cup Series. You know, you just started after Christmas at Hendrick. How's everything been so far? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I obviously you can't ask for for a whole lot more. It's been an enjoyable start to my role here, which is uh, you know something kind of totally new to me. And and uh, we had a really good clash two weeks ago, which was the first race of the season and the first race for me here. And Alex finished uh, in the top five, which was great. And then to be on the Daytona 500 pole is obviously about the biggest accomplishment of the year, short of winning races, right? And and that means a lot to a lot of people. And Ally announced uh, yesterday morning before the poll that they're going to be returning for at least, I think, five, maybe six years. Yeah, and, through. And just a lot of good news. Yeah. Yeah, through 2028. It's been such yeah. a great offseason for you guys and great week at that. One of the big changes this year for the 48 car is the incoming, uh, well, besides you, uh, we got Blake Harris joins the crew. <laughs> you know, first year crew chief on the 48, did tremendous things at front row last year with a 34 car. And then just before that, at Joe Gibbs Racing also did a fantastic job. Uh, you knew Blake, but around Christmas you asked him if there was anything open, uh, and then this whole deal came together. There's a story there. How'd everything fall into place to set up what you're currently doing right now? Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, not much more intensive than what you just said, kind of just in the right place at the right time. And I actually wasn't um, necessarily looking for a full-time role anywhere, but I had just, you know, not long prior to Christmas and in, and prior to bumping into Blake was thinking about seeing what was out there and, and kind of what the opportunities were and, and what, what it would be like to work in a role at a big team like this, which I had never done before. And I bumped into Blake and because that was on my mind, we were chatting for just a second and I was like, Hey, I should just, you know, I thought to myself, just ask him if he's, if there's anything open and that would kind of force myself to start thinking about it more and making decisions and he was like uh yeah i think we might you know the role that that's available right now isn't necessarily something that uh it's, a, it's not an engineering role which is which is my background but he felt that uh, he would really like to have someone with both racing experience and an engineering background uh joining the team and and so he, he got back on me a few weeks later and said, hey, it's here's what the deal is. Here's how it would all work. And uh, so we, I came into the shop a few times, you know, to try to, to try to put me together an offer and it just worked out. So uh, it happened pretty quick at that point. It, I, just, I started, I guess, middle of January. We're, we're coming up on like a month now. Just one of those deals. I bumped into Blake uh, at a random place, random time. And here we are. So a lot of this I'm getting from that fantastic article by Tyler Deering off the Hendrick Motorsports website, which is a great read, by the way. But in that article, it, it piqued my interest that you said right before you joined Hendrick, again, you were already considering taking a full-time position with any team. Were there any other teams in the running that you were considering, not, not necessarily on the cup level, or were you, uh, were you dead set on just working for a cup team? Uh, honestly, like that's the thing is I, I hadn't even thought as far as like to, to look for openings and, and, you know, what team to look at first. I, I had just started to think, well, maybe I should consider looking. And because I ran into Blake, who I, I'd met prior and knew him just a little bit. So I was like, you know what, uh, while, while we're talking, let me just ask him. And, and so that's what I did. And so there wasn't anything else in the in the running because I never got that far. And, and the offer was uh, was good enough for me. So I took it and that was all there was to it. So you're, you're a double major graduate from WVU and mm -hmm. aerospace, mechanical engineering. To put it lightly, you're a really smart guy. <laughs> so how do you apply what you learned in college to your, your daily job at Hendrick now as a setup mechanic at Hendrick? Do you have yeah. any aspirations of uh, working with the aero and wind tunnel departments at Hendrick in the near future? 
So it's an interesting question. I've been asked that a few times and, you know, really that's the idea too that, that Blake and I had spoke about or what he had brought up to me was that, you know, in, in my role on the setup plate uh, as a setup mechanic, it, not a ton of engineering background really necessary. You know, having experience setting up cars and, and working on them is really all it would, would take to make the transition pretty easy. And of course I had a, a, quite a bit of that. So um, it was more or less just me getting used to a, a whole different type of chassis and car and some of the different tools they use here. And that was about it. I kind of understood the concepts. But the idea was, you know, this was the was the role open and Blake felt that, you know, he wanted to see if that was a good fit for the 48 team and, and his group. And, and so uh, that was the role that was open at the 48. But as time goes on, if there would be something that I could grow into that's more of an engineering task, if you will, then I will already be here. I'll be kind of in the system and seeing how all this stuff works. And, um, I, and again, honestly, I haven't thought that far ahead. I'm not necessarily looking for anything, but that was just something that Blake had kind of brought up. So nothing in particular to answer that shortly, but potentially in the future, who knows? And, and, and honestly, the arrow side of it would probably be where I would if I, if I was to look for something or, or wanting to look for something specific, I was always very, you know, interested in the aerodynamics and stuff side of racing more so than anything else. It seems like, again, Blake Harris, who just joined Hendrick this year, has seemed to, what he joined uh, after the conclusion, what, November, and then already, uh, it seems like you guys have just really had a, taken this situation by the reins, and then there's a lot of control and a lot of good things coming from that 48 team right now. And obviously, it's probably a little early to, to say too much, you know, with yeah. the, the clash was a was a decent test of uh you know it's, it's a tough track so all the things have to go right for you to be competitive and we were very competitive so that was very promising and you got to try to take daytona or talladega with a grain of salt because there's so many factors and really a team like hendrick you know you'd almost expect uh to always be really close to the front because you have all the best resources uh, aerodynamics engines you know the whole nine yards and uh, something i've noticed already is you know across the board but especially here at hendrick you know all all four crew chiefs are totally different personalities, it seems. And e- even the the crews for each car, you know, the, the personalities are just a lot of times very different. It's good, I think. And I think Blake is a great fit for this 48 group of guys, particularly. Not to say he wouldn't be a great fit for any of the other teams, but I think this would be <laughs> the best for him. So, it, you know, those are the things that tend to make a difference, it seems, in racing is, is a good combination of people and just, just the right combinations of different things. And in this case, we're talking about people. I think Blake's a great guy, going to be really influential, and so far seems to uh, be meshing really well, and everyone's meshing with him here on the 48 car. I'm interested to hear from a new Hendrick employee again, which every year Hendrick Motorsports it seemingly has the 500 down to a science when it comes to prep, always brings the fastest cars. How is the lead up to the 500 prep wise in the shop from someone who this is their first rodeo at Hendrick and does the clash throw a wrench into anything with 500 prep? Is it just a lot to take on so early? Um, I, you know, I wouldn't say it was so bad because, you know, they had been kind of ahead of schedule, you know, since it was the off season. And it seems like the flow is we probably would get a car, you know, for each race about a week or maybe a little bit more than a week before it needs to load up and head to a race. A car on the setup plate uh, would be fully assembled when we get it about a week or so in advance. But that Daytona car was definitely, you know, closer to two weeks ahead of time. So, we, you know, it seemed like they were probably planning to take extra time and, and, and I'll just say you know for sure when it came down to it i think we ended up working a couple of late nights to 
they'll finish it, you know, taking extra special care every, you know, all the, all the things that you can maximize within the rules. We, we, you know, if we were just a fraction of a percent from the maximum, we didn't settle for that. We went ahead and took the car back to the setup plate and redid everything, changed all the, you know, parameters that we could to try to get it as close to that maximum threshold as we could. And so I do think that, uh, you know, that effort by everyone seems to have paid off. And, and there's a lot of other factors, of course, with the engine department and the, and the aero department. But I, I think, again, the engineers and Blake had probably been pushing everyone to meet that level of, you know, detail. And it definitely emphasized here that we wanted to set one of these four cars on the day 2500 pole. And we did. So it's definitely a, a really cool situation and mission accomplished yes certainly and i mean you not only put a car on the pole but you sweep the front row uh so you're currently a setup mechanic but let's not get confused here first and foremost you're a race car driver and a great one at that (laughs) two arca cra super series titles not just one but two crown jewel uh, late model wins with the 2016 winchester 400 2019 snowball derby and then you won in your first ever start in arca back in 2015 at irp of which fun fact you you beat current hendrick motorsports driver william byron to get that win and then then you took that leap of faith leaving arca for 2020 combined with ron fike closing up the arca RFMS shop, and then the massive victory at the Snowball Derby, and then all of a sudden COVID hits. So it's it's now 2023. I know you still want to drive and have been driving, but what are your plans for this upcoming year and the future ahead? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I could say that, you know, of course, I was still racing full time somewhere and had plans, you know, nailed down for this year. But of course, as you know, um, you know, my girlfriend, Jess, had uh, quite the scare that we're through now last year. She found out uh, towards the end of 2021 that she was uh, going to have to go through some treatment and surgeries for breast cancer. And and so last year was pretty much, you know, I, I, I couldn't even bring myself to really care about racing, honestly, at that point. Uh, didn't watch much of it. Didn't really even cross my mind much as we were just going through that. And uh, now that she's back healthy, you know, both of us have, have definitely wanted to get back to the racetrack. And you know, prior to um, all of that, we had you know moved to Charlotte in in 2020. Uh, unfortunately, right before COVID hit, which definitely kind of affected our plans. And, and part of our plan was to come here and try to you know not necessarily leave behind short track racing, but you know instead of trying to be a 100% main emphasis on short tracks and working on the side to try to make something happen as you know to get some starts in NASCAR, we wanted the emphasis to be getting starts in NASCAR first and then still on the side racing short tracks because that's something I do love to do. And so I kind of had to make that decision and step away from it. And just unfortunately, the way everything, you know, worked out, it basically left me with nothing, <laughs> um, which is which is all fine. You know, that's the, uh, we wanted to take that chance and, and we're still happy that we did. And, and uh, we've met a lot of great people the last couple of years here in Charlotte and definitely a lot of opportunities are there. But as you probably are well aware and most of the listeners are, I'm sure, well aware, it's, it's a very sponsorship and financially driven sport. And so we now that you know Jess is healthy and, and we're both in a better spot, we're we're definitely looking to get back to work at you know building some more relationships. We do have some sponsors that we could rekindle a relationship with, hopefully, and and uh, try to try to seek some new and indefinitely to get back to the track and hopefully at some point a first start in NASCAR. You know, even if it was just one, it'd be cool to do it for the first time finally and check that off the list of something I've been trying to do my entire life and have yet to uh, get to do that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And certainly capable of going to NASCAR and having success. You talk about a guy with all the credits that could go to the big time and then make something of it. I guess just one final question. You're at a new beginning at Hendrick. You're off to a fantastic start. What are your hopes for the upcoming season? And what's one thing you want to do by the end of 2023? Well, you know, my hopes are definitely to have, you know, a lot of fun and success here at, at Hendrick on the 48 team. And, and I do partially say that just because I can tell already that, uh, that we're kind of poised and, and full of potential to, to do both of those things, to have a lot of fun and success. And, you know, I, I kind of didn't expect less, but now that I'm here, I, I see that uh, this could be a super fun situation this year. And a lot of people are very motivated on this team. And, you know, beyond that, I, I definitely think that uh, what's on my wish list for this year would be, for, you know, Jess and I are actually just starting to really heavily work on this as we speak. Now that we're moved into our new apartment, is, is working on building, you know, some more relationships with some team owners and sponsors uh, to, to try to get back to the racetrack ourselves a few times. Uh, whether that's still just in the short tracks for right now or if it ends up being in NASCAR, that would be great. But those are the two things. Have fun, have success here at Hendrick in the Cup Series and work you know, outside of that on, on getting back to the track ourselves. Travis, thank you for the time today. Yeah, thank you very much. And I hope you guys have a a great year of, of shows and I hope it turns out well. And that'll do it for tonight's episode of Speed Zone. And hope you enjoyed Thanks to uh, Travis Braden alongside his uh, his wife Jess and uh, Dale for helping set up that interview. It was a great time getting to sit down and talk to Travis and getting to know him. And uh, again, thanks to Travis Braden, Jess Braden, Dale Garrett, and Justin Zimmer, our panelists tonight. I'm Ben Cower. Thank you for tuning in for a Speed Zone. And until next time, go trade some paint and drop the hammer. Thanks for tuning You've been in. Listening to another sports presentation on the Cutting Edge Sports Radio Network.